electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, 2 trillion, 11,000. Apple and the NASDAQ on the march to those respective milestones. Can anything stop big tech? We debate that today with our investment committee. And joining me for the hour today, Josh Brown, John Ajarian, Shannon Sakosha is the chief investment officer at Boston Private Wealth. Rob Seachin with UBS Private Wealth Management is one of Forbes' top 100 financial advisors. And Tiffany McGee's back, the CEO of Momentum Advisors Institutional Investment Services Group. Let's do what we always do, begin with a look at where stocks are. The Nasdaq is higher once again. All three are right now. In fact, uh, there's your picture. The Dow is uh, added a bit lately up uh, 127 points, about one half a percent. Nasdaq's muted for the most part, still in positive territory. Apple leading the way again today has been up by more than one percent. It, of course, trying to hit two trillion dollars in market cap, has to get to 467.77 to do just that. Keep your eye on that number. We will as well. Josh Brown, I begin with you. Strategus today says Apple is now the single largest S&P 500 weight over the past 40 years at six and a half percent. That in and of itself tells the story of how well this stock has done. Yeah, I mean, it's undeniable. And if you were to look at the business landscape and look at every company over the last 40 years and you had to pick one to be the largest weight in the S&P, Apple would be the company that you would pick. I don't even think it would be difficult. Um, you could throw a lot of the other names in there, but this should be um, the, the largest weight. It makes perfect sense given the success of the fundamentals of the, of the company itself. Um, so why wouldn't it be the largest stock? However, this is as extended as I've ever seen it since 2012. The stock is now 47% above its rising 200-day moving average. And historically, if you had bought the stock at, at anything even above 25 or 30% above its 200-day uh, moving average, that had typically been a period of consolidation uh, to follow. So it may not be the best idea with fresh cash to go plowing into the stock. That said, I own it. I've been in it forever. I never sell it. I never pay attention to upgrades and downgrades. I'm okay with this stock consolidating at these levels. I don't need it to have returns like it's had in the last few weeks, every week, forever. I would point out, Scott, over the last three days, Apple has added $230 billion in market cap. Let me repeat, three days, $230 billion. So they've added the equivalent of a Netflix uh, since Friday. So if you think that that's normal and if you think that's sustainable, um, I, I would tell you to read some market history. So while I'm remaining long the name, I would not be a buyer at today's price. I do not think what we're witnessing right now can go on for very much longer before at minimum a consolidation, if not a pullback. And, and that's ex exactly, Josh, where I want to go next. So Tiffany, as extended as I've ever seen it, is what, what Josh says. It can't go on forever. What, what is next? What, what ends it? What, what advice do we have for, for people who, are, who own Apple? All of you own Apple? Uh, presumably a large swath of our viewing audience owns Apple. What do we do? Everyone owns Apple. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So listen, Apple is now the most valuable public company on the planet, really. So, you know, they've surpassed uh, Saudi Arabia's um, uh, Aramco. So we are talking about, um, you know, Josh is actually really correct. The old way of thinking, right, the, the, the conventional, not old, but the conventional way of thinking is that if something, if a company is really doing, um, is really growing in market cap in the way that Apple is, you know, how how much more can it grow, right? How much room does it have to grow? But I, I continue to think that, listen, tech always finds a way to win. And in particular, 
Apple is just a very different company. We're really in this different time right now where the old rule book really isn't working. And so Apple continues to innovate. Uh, you know, they, they reported earnings, revenues of uh, 59.7 billion, up 11% in the last year uh, in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, you know, th this is just um, a really interesting situation, and I don't think we can use conventional wisdom to 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 really uh, figure out what to do with Apple next. But, but I'm holding it. Yeah, absolutely not getting rid of that. John, well, what stops it? Right. If it can't go on forever and if maybe the forever is closer than we think that this stock is going to consolidate, what ends it? the, uh, I guess, $2 trillion question almost, Scott. Um, I mean, it's right now it's 45% of Berkshire Hathaway. That's how big it is. Um, this thing bailed out Warren, of course, uh, when he was puking out uh, IBM and the airlines and so forth. Uh, this, uh, you know, it, it, it's really a question, Scott, of who decides they need to lighten up and how much are they going to lighten up or uh, conversely, do they uh, are they able to even meet the demand for the new phones? I mean, is is it going to look like you know the lines around the block for other things like popular movies and things like that? We've seen that at Apple stores in the past, Scott. Um, we know that this one, according to most of the insiders, is not going to be coming our way until October rather than September announcement. But nonetheless, I think a lot of folks are going to be lined up for the phone. Will they be able to meet that? Will it be pushed out so far into the future, Scott, that that is one of the reasons that people finally say, yeah, I think it's got to consolidate. Remember when we talked every week, Scott, about the law of large numbers, and I kept saying it doesn't matter, that doesn't apply to stocks. It does not apply to stocks, um, but that doesn't mean that trees grow to the sky. I mean, at some point, they slow down at least a little bit. And that's likely to happen here with Apple. I'm not going to get all depressed about it. We know who the buyers are, Apple, Buffett, and everybody who doesn't yet own it or wants to own more of it. And yeah, but I Josh, is suggesting, Josh is suggesting a huge mistake would be if you don't own it to buy it here. If you want to buy more to buy it here is a mistake as well, that, that this thing is overextended as extended that Josh has, has ever seen it. The stock is up 20 percent, mm -hmm. John, in a month. One month, 20 yeah. percent. We had somebody on Squawk Box this morning suggest that not, Apple hasn't changed that much from one trillion to two trillion. So why has the stock gone as far as it had? The fundamentals haven't changed that to, to drive from one trillion to two trillion. You've had massive multiple expansion and now you're you're at what could be an unsustainable level. Scott, what, what, changed is, what changed is the fundamentals of the world around Apple. Um, you now have a 10-year treasury with it's 50 or 60 basis points. Um, if inflation is, we think it's 2%, it could even be higher if we measured it differently. So in, in real terms, you're actually losing money on, on, on risk-free bonds. And that situation has exacerbated further uh, over the last month. So that, that's what's really happened. And so it's not just an Apple story. That's what happened with every growth stock. If we're basically saying that if we're looking at things like terminal rates and, and cost of capital and what the risk free return is for something like a treasury and that number now goes negative in real terms in inflation adjusted terms, then arguably people that are doing modeling on what growth stocks are worth, well, they can just ratchet up all their price targets. And that is now, I think, getting to the point where it's crossing over into abject silliness. That's not to say that Apple doesn't deserve to be the most valuable company in the world, but this, forget Netflix, ExxonMobil's $180 billion market cap. Should, should Apple add the equivalent of an ExxonMobil in market cap on a weekly basis? It's, it's, it's getting to the point where it's completely out of touch with the, 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 the size of the economy and Apple's role in it even globally. So that's not to say it can't go higher, because remember, they're still doing their capital return to shareholders. They're still buying back stock. I hope they slow down, but that's still part of the story here. Um, and the cash generation of this company is still enormous, unlike anything that's ever been right. seen. You really have to go back and read about uh, the South Seas Company and, and the, the Dutch East India Company to find anything this dominant. But these stories can't go on forever. Rob, Rob is this sustainable? 
um, or not. And part of the reason I bring up what Stratega says about Apple's weight in terms of the S&P 500 is it better not falter. It better not have a single misstep because then you risk having broader implications for the overall market. Totally agree with that. I also agree with with Josh and everybody that spent time speaking today. This is a story beyond Apple. If you look at the most virtual, the most digital, the most innovative companies, they are the ones that have been the winners because investors are willing to pay up for that durability of growth. And I think that continues until we have a solution for the virus. And that may be some time and there may be some volatility around those answers. Um, it is concerning, though, because when you look at Facebook, Apple, Amazon, uh, Microsoft, Alphabet, they're 22 percent of the market cap of the S&P 500. Um, I think they've performed for very good reasons, but I think they may have gotten ahead of themselves. And I think that's what we're all talking about. But in a zero return world where the 10 years yielding 50 basis points and you can get an earnings yield on the S&P 500 driven predominantly by these growth companies of 4.7 percent, depending on what your earnings are for 2021, it starts to look like the market may have been acting rationally shunning these value stocks, favoring these growth stocks. It also looks like when you look at the earnings of the S&P, I mean, you have basically 80% of companies have reported, 18% have beat at the top, uh, at the top line, uh, bottom line, 3% uh, have beat at the top line. Those are extraordinary numbers. And so markets are not, in my mind, acting irrationally, but I am cautious about the magnitude of the move that we've seen in some of these names and some of the disconnects that I see between the, the market and the real economy. Shannon, NASDAQ's now gone negative. How do you see this playing out? I, I agree with what everybody's been saying. I think that there are, you know, two legitimate sides to the story. Number one, you know, there is sustainable growth, and that factor continues to outperform if you're looking at it from a factor perspective. Number two, I mean, I think we were all afraid of this last week. We were anticipating the potential for one of these stocks to make a mistake and have a misstep, and we didn't see that, and everybody cheered that, and now it's continuing to pile back in. Um, I do think that there is going to be an opportunity for uh, investors who want to own these companies long-term. I do think there's going to be an opportunity for them to get into those stocks. Um, I think that it won't be valuations that upset this. I think it will be one of these stocks reporting something that does not fit um, where their multiples are right now. And so, you know, I, I would be wary. I mean, if, if you had to press me on whether I would sell Microsoft now or hold it for 10 years, then I'm absolutely holding Microsoft for 10 years, even at these levels. Um, but I think that when we look at the NASDAQ and we look at the overabundance of performance and outperformance of tech stocks over everything else in the market, I just don't think it speaks to the strength of the market overall. And I'd love to see the rest of the market catch up rather than see these fall and say, aha, I told you so. Well, I wonder, Tiff, look, you, you said something that, that gave me a little bit of pause, where you, your quote was, tech always finds a, a way to win. Look, th there are some people who, who, not many, but some certainly who view what's taking place in this very narrow breadth of the market, in this consolidated trade, if you will, and it brings back memories of this runaway tech trade in 1999. Now, we can make clear distinctions between the stocks that are rising of this magnitude today and the ones that did in 1999. These are real companies. They have tons of cash on their balance sheets. They have real fundamentals, and they are at the forefront of what the new and current economy is going to be. But maybe we need to look at this in the context of a new and a different kind of runaway tech trade that is unsustainable just the way the one in 99 was unsustainable, just for very different reasons. Do you have any concerns whatsoever that we're reliving it, just reliving it with a different narrative? Yeah, so I, I wasn't in the business in 1999. <laughs> I won't say how old I was, but uh, mm -hmm. I, so many people are actually making that comparison, um, the valuation of tech companies right now to, uh, to, to that time period. And I don't think it's the same, it's, it's the same thing. You know, these companies um, are, 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 they're, are very valuable for different reasons. So right now, um, in, in particular in this time in our country, we really are at the intersection of, you know, um, the world essentially being on pause because of a global pandemic. And on the other side of that, tech, 
with its foot on the gas pedal, right? So that's a very different scenario. Um, and these companies do have extreme value. And I think, again, we need to take out, we need to take this rule book that we've, we've been following for a long time. I don't think that it works here. So do I have concerns? I mean, of course, we're watching everything very closely. Um, but I don't think that, you know, uh, that we can use that same reasoning. So no, I mean, again, we're holding Apple. Um, there won't be a scenario where we sell Apple anytime soon. Uh, the same thing goes with Microsoft. Uh, the same thing goes with uh, Amazon. Um, so I, I really do think that we're just touching the surface uh, from a tech perspective. Josh, what, 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 I'm sorry to, to interrupt you. I just want to move to Josh real quick. What in your mind, Josh, is, is, is more extended? Apple and some of these large mega cap technology stocks or the, the other ones, if you will, the DocuSigns, the Zooms, the Shopify's, the Spotify's. And, and which is likely to have a crack first and what were the broader implications be in either scenario? So I was actually going to make this point that what's very different about now in 1999 is that it's not as narrow as it was then. And I was around. Um, I, I was slightly uh, more handsome than I am today. But um, I, I think it's a very different story because at the same time that the triple Qs are making a new high today, the, the QQEW, which is the equal weighted version, is also making a new high. So there's much more participation than just the, the mega cap tech stocks. Um, and I also think you can throw in names like Wayfair. It's not a tech stock. They, they sell, you know, uh, they sell middle of the road furniture. Couches, yeah. um, but that's making a new high. And, and they lose money on every and, the and they lose money on every piece of that furniture that they sell. Because it's a growth right, because it's a growth company and investors have wisely decided that profitability today is not the priority. Market share is and profits will come later. And you could scoff at that, but it's actually been the only strategy to use to beat the market, the stocks that have decided to do that. So, so it never ends? It's been working for it, like a it, decade it, I now. know, I, I get it. No, I hear it you. Your end. point's well made, but it doesn't end? It never ends? I, I just want to say, the, dogs think the it Russell ends. 2000... Even the dogs are barking. The, They're like, the it Russell, has to end. Those aren't mine. The, the Russell 2000 has been consolidating for a couple of weeks. That's now breaking out of consolidation. Emerging markets have been consolidating for a week. They're now breaking out. The metals are ripping. The XLI is consolidating just below its 200-day moving average. That's on breakout watch. You got new highs in healthcare in the month of July, the whole sector. You got new highs in communications and consumer discretionary. So it is not just about tech. It's just this idea that money is so cheap, capital is so abundant, that basically investors have decided they are going to prioritize growth in their portfolios. And so when you look at sectors in the market, it's not about what industry is it. It's about which companies are taking share and growing and which ones aren't. Those are the stocks that are working. And I understand it can't go on forever. But people were saying that in 2013 also. It's seven years later. It's the same trade. I, I get you. It's I don't know why then. Trade. I, I, I don't know why then, Rob, Rob Seachin, you've got people like Savita of Subramanian over at Bank of America saying value is poised to outperform. Why do we keep trying to say that, that value too. is going to have its moment in the sun? When the market and investors are telling you what the winning trade is and what our panel and the, mar the money is suggesting the winning trade will continue to be. I think it's because value is not going to win until the sun comes out. Um, and the sun coming out is a function of the economy returning to some level of normalcy. Um, it's, it might be a new normal, and there's clearly going to be winners because of trends that were accelerated because of this COVID situation. But the sun has to come out. And how does the sun come out? The sun comes out with effective therapeutics, effective vaccines for, for the virus. And I think you're, you probably want to set yourself up. I think everything that Josh has said is a fact, and clearly some of these uh, other companies are benefiting in the early stages of this this rotation, but the big winners are obviously tech. I think the catch-up trade happens at that pivot point. You have everything in place that will allow that catch-up to happen from an economic standpoint once that light switch is flipped. Yeah. And it's not going to be a light switch. No, I get it. It's like a dimmer once switch, right? Once we start to make that progression down a more positive path related switch. to the virus. The dimmer has to go up slowly, right? Anybody who thinks you're just going to flip the switch back on and we're back to normal, I think, is, is kidding themselves. Oh, I now think that, it's going to be I think it's going to be flip the switch. I think I think you have that wrong. I think they'll they'll announce an approval at some point this fall before the election. 
and you're going to flip a switch. They're going to announce approval of the vaccine before the election. And one of one of several. Yeah. And uh, they may and stocks stocks that are on the 52 week low mm -hmm. list will all of a sudden become the hottest stocks in the market. And I, uh, right. I do think confidence will return fast. So then you think we're going to have this V-shaped e economic recovery? That's what you're suggesting? No, I'm talking about the stock market. I'm talking about the stock market, not the economy. I mean, the stock market's already ripped, though. No, no, no. Well, but I'm not talking those about the bottom other half of stocks. stocks. <laughs> there are a that, lot of them, Scott. The value indices no, no, no. are down I'm, 13 here, Let's be clear. Let's be clear. I, I'm, I'm talking about if you think the value trade is going to, to be one that you want to put money into, the cyclical trade, you need the economy to snap back. It's not enough just to say... Let, right. me, put it to you, let, me, let me give you a scenario. Okay. Let me give you a scenario. I was, I was talking with Peter Brookvar about this this morning. The Fed has done so much, and the Treasury, have done so much to offset the decline in spending that would have ordinarily happened during a moment like this that it may be the case that the announcement of FDA approval of a vaccine and the reopening of millions of businesses across the country overwhelm, overwhelm all of the traditional ways that we measure uh, price inflation. All of a sudden, there just may not be enough things to go around, physical things and service things. There just may not be enough. You could get this moment where trillions of dollars in the bond market say, oh my God, we're in negatively yielding in real terms uh, bonds right now and the economy is coming roaring back you have a treasury yield at 50 basis points that overnight could be at one percent what does that do to the value trade scott um it, concurrently with the improve approval uh, improvement in the economy all of a sudden bank stocks could go up 20 percent in that scenario all of a sudden industrial stocks which i just mentioned you could see transportation stocks ripping higher which they started to last month so i do think you'll get an approval of a vaccine I do think it will have the effect of flipping on a light switch, not a dimmer. I think first it'll be reflected in the stock market. The economy will take a little bit longer, but we might be in a situation where the Fed and Treasury have done too much in hindsight, and then we're having an inflation conversation. So I'm just pointing out that it's a very real possibility that bonds are not pricing in, value stocks are not pricing in, and that could flip everyone's head around if it happens. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a provocative point of view. And look, uh, well, I, I said I also, right. Scott, I uh, thought everybody we were going to rage, right? I mean, you still have to deploy the vaccine yeah. once you, once you get it and others approved, and that's going to take mm -hmm. uh, a bit of time, but I hear you. Your point is well taken. John, John, go ahead. No, I was, I was saying that that's exactly my point a couple months back, Scott. I said, we will rage when we get that vaccine, it will rage. Now, None of us know right now when that will be. Um, and, of course, uh, I, I do think it's going to be much more like Josh says. It's going to be much more like that light switch. And we will rage. Um, you know, we've heard that from other folks. And I believe this deep down in my soul, Scott, that people are just anxious to get out there. And uh, I think airlines, um, obviously, anything that's face-to-face -face communication rather than remote all of a sudden, those really come roaring back to Josh's point. Yeah. Josh, quickly, um, you know, when you talk about where you're putting your own money, it's growth, right? You have a new buy, and it's called Bill.com, the ticker symbol, Bill. It, yeah. Bill. So Bill is, Bill is a company that came public very quietly last December. It is now being discovered. The stock broke out uh, yesterday, so I bought it on the breakout. It's a trade. Uh, it may turn into a longer-term investment. I am absolutely trailing it with a stop. Um, fundamentally, this is a company that will go from $150 million to $180 million. The next year, 200 some odd million. It is a growth company in the small and mid-size enterprise software space. Basically, Bill.com gives companies like mine uh, the ability to uh, work with our vendors mm -hmm. in a very streamlined way. It fits perfectly in the category of the best-performing stocks of this year. This is one of those companies that allows businesses to get more efficient, work from home, work from anywhere, um, and, and take care of things as though they were a Fortune 500 company. So I love the story. I love the growth here. I love the market share uh, gains that the company has been making throughout this pandemic period. Um, and hopefully I'm in it for a while. But I would just point out it's not cheap. And in the scenario I just laid out where value comes roaring back, absolutely this will be a stock that will underperform 
if and when that situation plays out, hence the trailing stop loss. This is the perfect example of being willing to pay up for growth. Um, and, and even for a stock that's already had a, a magnificent run. Stock's up 150%, Josh, year to date. Yep. Tiff, you have um, you have stocks that you 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 like as well, um, and they're all you know for the most part in tech. Overstock, Mercado Libre, Pinterest. Tell us. Yeah, absolutely. So I think you know while while the entire world was watching Amazon hit you know three thousand dollars a share quietly over to the side, or maybe not so quietly, you know Overstock has been for the years been up over a thousand percent. You know so. I'll, a thousand percent versus Amazon, who's up about 68 percent for the year. And so what I love about Overstock, again, it is that um, it does have that tech factor. But I like the fact that it's solving an issue, right? It's solving a problem for retailers. So it buys the excess uh, um, inventory of retailers. And it also allows retailers and small businesses to, to, to sell their goods on their platform. So I love that model. Um, but it's doing really, really well. Yeah. Uh, in addition to uh, in addition to Overstock, I also like um, Mercado Libre. Um, again, I really do love e-commerce. I don't, you know, e-commerce has had a, an amazing run in the past several months, clearly because of the pandemic. But I don't think that that's going to stop. Um, Mercado Libre is a company, an e-commerce company that operates primarily in Latin America, uh, Brazil. Um, I love uh, the emerging markets play. Um, and I also, of course, love the tech story. It's up 87% in the past three months, uh, over 103% in the past year. And so I, I keep talking about, um, you know, what these companies are doing in the past three months. Normally, you know, I'm a long-term investor. Normally, I'm not as concerned with performance over the past three months. But just given where we are today and given this really crazy, uh, you know, uncertain time that we're in, I'm really looking at what companies have done in the past three months, yeah. um, how they've, you know, how, how they've um, reacted to, to, to this pandemic. I also love, love, love Pinterest. And so Pinterest is, uh, of course, a, uh, I guess you could call it a social media platform, but it really um, provides inspiration for its users. It allows users to kind of create these virtual vision boards. What I love about it um, especially in contrast to Facebook, is the targeted way it can reach customers, right? So it helps advertisers reach their customers in very targeted ways. Uh, so I really do love that. Um, they just reported earnings. Earnings were amazing. Right. International revenue is up. And from an ESG pr perspective, they are very um, uh, uh, against hate speech and said so okay. um, when they opened their, their earning call. Well, let me do this. Let, let's take a quick break. Okay, Tiff, you stay with me. Uh, we'll come back. Steve Weiss has uh, been buying some shares of a uh, company you'd be very interested in as well. We'll do that on the other side. Disney reporting its earnings. We'll talk about that ahead of the number. We'll do all that when we come back. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. We're back into Sue Herrera. We go for the headlines today. Hi, Sue. Hello, Scott. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. A massive explosion has shaken the Lebanese capital of Beirut. Lebanon's health minister says there is a high number of injuries. Associated Press reports widespread destruction in central Beirut. Some local TV stations are reporting that that blast was at Beirut's port inside an area where firecrackers are stored. In St. Paul, Minnesota, a huge fire has seriously damaged a hotel and an apartment complex that was under construction. Nearby buildings were also damaged, including a homeless shelter. No injuries have been reported so far. And in New York City, the city's health commissioner has resigned in protest. In a letter obtained by the New York Times, Dr. Barbeau said she was disappointed that her department's expertise had not been used more during the pandemic. 
Health officials have criticized the mayor's decision to move responsibility for the city's contact tracing to the public hospital system. You are up to date, Scott. I'll see you again in an hour. Back right, to you. I look forward to that, Sue. Thank you very much. Now to Julia Borston, who has a news alert for us. Julia. Yes, Scott, an alert on CNBC's parent company, NBC Universal. I've confirmed with a source close to the situation that NBC Universal has begun layoffs. They're expecting to keep those layoffs at less than 10% of NBC Universal's 35,000 full time employees. These layoffs will be pre predominantly at the company's entertainment side of the business. At the parks business, those layoffs will be tied to COVID at the TV, movie, entertainment side of the business, those layoffs will be more part of a restructuring um, of that entertainment business. Scott, back over to you. Okay, Julia, thank you very much for that. Speaking of entertainment companies, Disney shares have fallen nearly 20% so far this year on the heels of park closures, delayed film releases, and a lack of live sports content. Investors, though, are going to be hanging on to the guidance tonight. Uh, all right, Shannon, you own it. You've got 13 buys. You've got 12 holds. I think most people are expecting the earnings themselves to be bad, but it's the outlook. Is it going to be any brighter? Yeah, I, I agree with you, Scott. I don't think anybody's expecting big things here from the earnings. I, you know, this is really challenging. It's a, it's a value catalyst uh, play that is masquerading in a, in a growth multiple. And that's a really tough place to be. Um, you know, I think we're looking at, if you look at park attendance, you know, estimated that they need to be about 60% to break even on the parks. Um, Disney Plus has been a bright spot. So we're looking for, you know, really substantial subscriber growth or plans to release some of their um, feature films may be direct-to-consumer versus through the theater, um, but also looking for, you know, some color on advertising demand. You know, sports, we need sports to come back. You know, I know we're all watching it, and it's coming back, and we're, we're seeing it on, on TV, and can they get enough advertising revenue out of that limited scope of sports to be able to make up some of the shortfall in parks? Right. Um, but this is really a 2020, 2021 story at best. Um, but we're also looking for a dividend. You know, we need the dividend to come back and, and some sort of guidance on when that dividend might reappear, I think, would provide some comfort that they have some transparency in a very uh, difficult and uncertain environment. OK, um, the dogs are back, as we hear. Uh, they apparently have cell ratings on Disney, <laughs> multiple cell ratings. So it sounded do. like multiple dogs. So they're, they're going way sell on, yeah, on, on, on Disney. Uh, you could totally hear that. Uh, Tiffany, you own Disney as well. Yeah, we, we do, and we've we've owned it for a while, and we, we definitely like uh, their their diversified revenue. But you know, let's just be honest; it's really a tough time for them right now. Um, you know, with with um, people not being able to really go to the parks, uh, they've they've lost um, definitely lost revenue there. Um, Disney Plus, I'm not you know convinced that that's uh, enough. The revenue from that is enough to sustain them. It, it, it clearly is not um, cutting their dividend. Uh, so we'll just be looking for any glimmer of hope. Yeah, a lot of people will. Tiffany, been good to ha it's been good having you back with us today. Uh, we will Thank see you. Soon. you. Hey, did you ever hear from Wells Fargo? Did you ever hear from the no, Wells Fargo CEO? No, I did not. <laughs> Oh, I got to talk to Kramer about that. Yeah, let's set it up. I thought he was hooking that up. All right, we'll follow up on that. I'll, I'll be back to you, I promise. Uh, you be well, and we'll see you again soon. Thanks so uh, much, Scott. For sure. Bye-bye. All right, now there's a big call today, by the way, on Take-Two Interactive. Uh, Rahel Solomon's with us with those details. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Scott. So a rare downgrade for the video game maker. Nonetheless, Take-Two hitting all-time highs after solid beats on bookings and EPS. Bank of America, though, thinks that the good news is already baked in, downgrading the stock to underperform, but raising their price target to $166 from $155. You can see the stock is up more than 5%. So, Scott, EPS was 44% higher than expectations, and recurrent consumer spend accelerated 127% year over year. So those are those in-game purchases. They account for a significant amount of their revenue, 65% in the first quarter, but B of A says that Take-Two's guidance for next quarter shows that that area is slowing. What is not slowing at the moment is sales across the industry. They surged 26% in June to $1.2 billion. We will learn much more when Activision Blizzard reports in a few hours. And Scott will also learn even more when Take-Two's CEO, Strauss Selnick, appears tonight on Mad Money with Jim Cramer. I'll send it back to you. Who I'm sure is, thank you, Rahel, is scoffing at this downgrade. Um, and I'm sure Strauss himself is, is too. Josh Brown, you know, this thing's been a juggernaut, really. I mean, 
The stock's up 40% in three months. Um, it raised its full-year sales forecast. We get the whole story. They have knockout properties, and yet you're going to go to sell, a downgrade to sell on this? Well, if you, if you do go to a sell and you've had a buy all this time, no one will be mad at you because you've been extremely right. I don't know what the history of this particular analyst covering the stock is, but like inarguably, it's gone, the stock price, forget about the fundamentals of the company, the stock price has gone vertical. It was $100 three months ago. It's 176 So has the business gotten um, almost twice as good as it was three months ago? Probably not. Uh, that being said, the company repeatedly reports earnings that exceed um, uh, expectations mm -hmm. quarter after quarter. They have hot properties in arguably one of the most important areas of entertainment right now. Video gaming is completely on fire. And we're going into a double console cycle at the end of this year. You're going to get the new Xbox and the new PlayStation in the same year at the same time for the holiday season. And you're going to see tons of games being sold alongside of those consoles. So it's a tough call. But again, the stock's gone up a lot. So the people that have been in this name have done very well. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying it's, it's more expensive here than we want to pay for it. Yeah. I think it's reasonable. All right. Well, listen to what Strauss Zelnick has to say when he uh, talks to Jim tonight. Again, it's an exclusive on, on Mad Money. We'll see that tonight. I mentioned to all of you as well that Steve Weiss was buying more shares of, of a stock. It's an automaker. You may recall that he recently bought GM, but now Ford CEO Jim Hackett is stepping down. Steve Weiss is with me, and Steve, you bought more shares of Ford because of this, because of this news? Uh, partly because of this news. I was thinking of uh, buying more anyway once they uh, launched the Bronco, where they picked up 150,000 pre-orders. But this sort of put me over the edge, so I bought Ford at the same time I bought GM. And the catalyst buying it was that used car prices have remained stubbornly high. I think that's largely temporary, but I expect it to continue for a little while. Uh, the CEO has auto experience, whereas the CEO that just stepped down uh, came from Steelcase, didn't really have auto experience. So you've got Farley, who's been there for 10 years, who's bought stock recently over the summer, about a million dollars, which is not insignificant. And I like what they're doing in terms of the changes. You've also got the new Mustang, the Mach-E. Uh, you've got a new launch on the 150. Uh, that's still the high margin. And I also like their SUV, which stumped a little bit. Uh, and capacity is very, very tight in the auto industry because plants were shut. So now they're opening. So for me, this was balancing my growth portfolio, my tech-heavy portfolio. It is also an option on a new vaccine and on the economy improving. So I just don't think there's a lot of downside here. I see it as very low risk and not a value trap. Yeah. So so I, I think it works out quite well with, uh, as I say, minimum downside. Interesting move, uh, certainly on top of GM. Steve, I appreciate you calling in. Stocks of about 1%. We'll follow it. Thank you, and we'll see you soon. That's Steve Weiss. Up next, Avenue Capital's Mark Lazary joins us for a check-in on the markets, the NBA, which is underway, and much more. Stay with us for that in a programming note on Wednesday, August 12th. Join the CNBC Small Business Playbook Virtual Summit. It's all about providing small business owners with resources to survive today's crisis and provide a path forward to thrive tomorrow. Go to cnbcevents.com slash smallbusinessplaybook to register. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. 
Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. Let's do our weekly check-in now with Mark Lazary, of course, the chairman and CEO of Avenue Capital, also the co-owner of the one and one Milwaukee Bucks. I thought you were going to go down there. You're going to be 2-0. Oh. Now that was the whole point of going down there. I don't understand what happened. <laughs> uh, we lost to Houston. We shouldn't have lost, but um, it was fun. It was good. It was, uh, it was a fun time. Can you, can you put me on the ground there? Um, just take me through the experience, sure. what, what it was like, what you did, uh, how many times you were tested, what you saw. Sure. Um, you fly in. Um, you get to the hotel and the minute you get to the hotel, so I apologize, before you go, you've got to have a test and you've got to be negative. Then when you get there, you take another test. And again, that's got to be negative before you can even go to a game. Um, you get tested every day. Um, you go to the game, you're in a plexiglass um, uh, area and you've got to wear a mask and you're watching the game um, and there's I mean, when I went, it was me, my son, uh, and the owner of the Celtics, and um, my partners, Wes Edens and Jamie. Um, but there was literally six people in the stands. That was it. Yeah. It's, you know, I've, I've been watching the games, and I guess I've been a little surprised. I didn't, didn't really know what to expect, frankly. Um, the quality of play is good. And the it quality is. of the viewing experience is much better than, than, I, than I expected. The, Seems like the league and the, the broadcast partners have done a pretty good job making this feel about as normal as you could possibly make it feel. They do. I think they've done a great job. It's funny, you know, when they said you're going to have a home team and an away team. Um, the funny part is we were the home team against the Celtics. So when we would score, the announcer would go, and Giannis, for the jam. And then if Tatum scored, he would go, basket by Tatum. And <laughs> You could actually see it. Um, it. It's fun. I think the players are getting used to it. So I think having the eight games first before you get to the playoffs is actually really good. Yeah. And, and when you look at how Major League Baseball is going through some issues with positive tests and series being canceled, do, do you think anything but the bubble environment is going to work for professional sports? I know a lot of our viewers, myself included, maybe you as well, are, are thinking towards the NFL in the fall uh, and right. thinking about how this is all going to work. I think Adam has done an absolute phenomenal job and the Players Association in getting this to the point of where it is, where you have to be in a bubble, where you're tested every day. The players feel safe. Everybody feels like it's, it's fine to play. Um, you know, the hard part is you're not with your family. You're, you're just with your teammates. Um, so I think for two months to three months, I think that's fine. I think it's going to be hard for the NFL. I mean, and you're seeing what's happening with baseball. Um, it's tough. Um, I think you, if you're in a bubble, you can control access. You can control what happens. So I think that's what you're going to need to do, and I'm sorry to say that. Yeah. W would you also, before you go, just address some of the criticism that, that um, is out there when, when people like you and others in other sports mention the amount of times they're able to be tested, how quickly you're able to get the results back. Do you understand why there's there's criticism around that? Here we are having a debate about how to send our kids back to school, and it seems as though professional athletes are, are being tested um, every single day, and the results are coming back quickly. I know the NBA is privately financing the tests and that, that whole system, but how do you address that, that criticism as to whether our priorities as a country are in the right place? I, I actually think... You know, at the end of the day, the government should be paying for those tests and making those tests available to everybody. It's a matter of cost, and that's really what it is. The NBA is paying for that, um, and I think those tests are available, but they're expensive. And if the government comes in and makes those tests cheaper and at least makes it available, um, then we could do that. So I think ultimately this is a responsibility of the government and, you know, I'm sad to say the government is not doing what they need to do for all of us to be tested as much as we should. Yeah. We'll see where that all, all goes. You guys play again today, correct? This afternoon? Yeah, we just do. A little bit. 2.30. So hopefully we win. 
All right. All right. It's good to see you as always, Mark. Thank you. Take care, my friend. All right. Bye-bye. You as well. That's Mark Lazary joining us today. John Najarian coming up is seeing some unusual activity. We'll get his latest trades. They're still ahead. All right, we're back and we're going back to Sue Herrera, who has breaking news for us regarding Kodak. Sue? I do indeed. The SEC, Scott, is investigating Eastman Kodak's announcement of a $765 million loan from the government to make drugs at its U.S. factories. You may recall that was last week. There was a huge spike in the stock. It produced a basically a windfall for company executives who own stock options grants. Here's the interesting twist to that. Those grants were issued July 27th, the day before the loan was actually made public. So the SEC is looking into this. They say it's at an early stage, but the area is being probed by regulators. How Kodak controlled disclosure of the loan, which began to emerge on July 27th, one day before the announcement, causing Kodak's stock price to surge considerably. And basically, they want to know what executives knew when, why was there no, um, why was there possibly a leak? That's what the SEC is looking into, Scott. So I'll send it back to you. Oh, I appreciate that update. Uh, John Najarian, we spoke about this story uh, at the time and the unusual activity you saw certainly in the trading volumes ahead of the announcement, right? What, what can you tell me and our viewers who may have missed our conversation that day? Well, Scott, um, just to recap briefly, it was averaging like, I think, 60, 70,000 shares a day, traded 285 million when the stock jumped from $2.62 up to Almost eight dollars, seven ninety-four. I think the very next day traded to sixty just after the opening, Scott, and then it was just hammered all the way back down. Obviously, uh, to see something go from sixty thousand shares to two hundred and eighty plus million shares, and then see that basically two days in a row, um, it kind of makes you scratch your head and wonder who had that newspaper the day before the event actually happened, and now. With Sue's reporting, uh, it sounds like a lot of those executives will probably be under the microscope here. Yeah, I'm curious, too, Josh, if if you have um, a thought on this story. Uh, Knowing you, I'd be surprised if you didn't, just how you've sort of (laughs) viewed this. Um, I would love your take. I've never seen anything like it. Um, I I think it's a a, a one-off, one-of-a-kind situation where this company somehow managed to convince someone within the government that, they have what it takes to all of a sudden start supplying in large quantities the, the materials necessary for an industry that they're not even really in. Peripherally, I guess you could say, they've always been a chemical company, but it's just so bizarre. And so any, anyone that you saw trading ahead of this or, or rewarding themselves with options, they're really going to have to, I think, uh, go to great lengths to make the case that um, the whole thing is kosher. It's just very strange, and uh, I can't even think of something, at least not in recent history, that compares to this situation. Yeah. The, and then the, all the warrant exercising makes it even uglier. Um, so so, they, so they, they, they price this money raise that then swamps the market with additional shares, and uh, that makes it that's an even worse twist because you know who was buying the stock. Yeah, we'll certainly keep watching it. Uh, you see uh, shares have uh, taken a negative turn. Uh, on that news of that SEC probe uh, said to be in its early stages right now, according to Dow Jones. That news brought to us just a few moments ago by our very own Sue Herrera. Let's do our futures outlook now. Crude is bouncing back. It's higher on the day. I'm taking a look now. It's about 1% for WTI. Still in bear market territory, though. Scott Nations and Bill Baruch breaking down what's behind that move. Scott, let's uh, begin with you. What's your take on crude now? A nice rally from the bottom, about a dollar and a half. Unfortunately, it came on the news of explosions in Beirut, so we're worried about geopolitical turmoil. Uh, And that's part of the supply problem. Also on the supply problem, you know, last week we saw a 10.6 million barrel draw from supply. And now we're starting to wonder if we're going to see another incident uh, tomorrow when we get supply data again. Add the fact that domestic production is extremely weak. And that last week we saw the lowest level of crude oil inputs going back to the early 1990s. And so as far as the bulls are concerned, supply is where it's at. Yeah. Bill, where's the catalyst to to break it out? That's the thing. We really don't have a catalyst right now. I, I 
see the path of least resistance higher. That's undoubted. But uh, I don't really want to be a buyer until we see lower prices. Thirty-four and a half, thirty-five dollars is where I see value, and, and here's why: if you look at the chart, uh, where this, where crude oil fell down March sixth, there's a big, big gap up there uh, on the September contract, forty-two and a half dollars. That's overhead resistance on the front month contract, about forty-one and a half dollars. That's keeping rallies in check. The other part of it is the, the, the trade is becoming overcrowded. If you look at historically, you have about four hundred thousand uh, contracts long right now, and about three hundred. 150,000 contracts net long right now, which is about 75, 80% against historic uh, full capacity of what we've seen position-wise. So if this market were to start moving lower at all, you start to see some liquidation. But also, if everybody's already bought, who is left to buy? So I need to see this market lower to find value or really break out above 42 and a half. All right. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Scott and Bill, we'll talk to you soon. Coming up, John's unusual activity is still to come, plus your final trades. Straight ahead on the half. Hi, we're back. John Nigerian's all yours. Unusual activity. Talk to me. All right, Scott. We've got uh, BP, uh, British Petroleum, cut the dividend today, cut it in half. That's the first time, Scott, since I think the Deepwater Horizon that they've had to cut the dividend. And the stock explodes on that news. Um, this stock uh, could easily, I think, retake 25 and move towards 30 bucks a share, Scott. Today it's 23.50. They were buying the September 4th expiration, 25 calls, pretty big numbers, paying just like 29 cents for those calls. I bought those. I'll probably be in them in the neighborhood of two to three weeks, Scott. Okay. Second trade, cannabis, cannabis play, Tilray. Take a look at Tilray because on the lows in March, this was a $2.5 stock. It's moved back up to 8 which is still way less than half of where it was uh, in January. It was $21 stock in January. So they have earnings on the 10th next week. They're buying right at the money. The eight strike calls, I bought those. I'll be in these about a week, Scott. Do the dogs have final trades for us today, Doc? The dogs do, yeah. The dogs, uh, Chewy? The, their final trade was the Amazon delivery guy yeah. um, who Dexter is feasting on that guy's leg right about now. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope, I hope some, uh, some Chewy was being delivered. Doc, thank you. Yes, uh, Rob Seachin, final trade from you. XLI, industrial sector ETF. It's down 10% year to date. And if you want to play that rotation to the extent it happens, that's a great way to do it. Okay, Josh Brown. Um, I mentioned Agnico Eagle Mines as a gold miner uh, last week. The other one I bought is Barrick. G-O-L-D is the ticker. Uh, great expense control, shedding assets, getting rid of debt. I really like this name. All right. Our apologies to Shannon. Of course, we had some problems with her line, and we hope to talk to her again soon on the show. John, you want to finish this out with final trades? Sure, Scott. Um, got a short-term trade in Lyft, L-Y-F-T. Uh, I like the upside call buying that we're seeing during the show. I bought that one during the show. Interesting stuff. Okay, good stuff. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.